Welcome, Dr. Farnsworth, to the World XP Podcast. I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, um, to talk to me today. Um, for those listening, this is a little bit of an out-of-cycle uh, release, but with uh, the current events in the Russia-Ukraine sort of department of the world, I figured I'd try and find somebody who is uh, an expert in the international relations field, uh, and I have found one, and I got lucky. So, Dr. Farnsworth, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, and for those listening, Dr. Farnsworth, you are a professor at Mary Washington. What is your sort of background? So those listening have an idea. Yeah, well, I, uh, I'm particularly uh, interested in presidential communication. And so a lot of my research focuses on presidents and media messages. For the purposes of this conversation, though, I should add that I have been involved in a number of media development projects in the nations of the former Soviet Union. Um, I've been to Ukraine three or four times. I've been to Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia in the Caucasus, uh, working with reporters, talking about how to build civil society and try to create an environment that is going to lead to more democratic developments in these countries. Um, these were USAID-funded projects, and so uh, that's one of the reasons why um, this is a, a topic of great interest to me. Um, I was a journalist myself, and working with other journalists has been one of the things that I've really enjoyed uh, as part of what I do as a professor. Awesome. So I guess we could start with just sort of how did we get here? I, obviously, since the Cold War, there's been tensions between Russia and the US meddling in elections, whether how much that takes place or not, or all the sorts of things we've heard of through the news throughout the last decade, I guess. But how did we get to, to this point where Putin decides that he needs to do this? Well, we got to this point because Putin wanted to get to this point. I mean, fundamentally, the uh, choice uh, of creating this environment um, was Putin's. Um, the uh, dynamic that Putin sees is um, that he doesn't uh, accept the breakup of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War. And he's doing what he can to try to restore as much as possible the world as it existed before Gorbachev. Um, the idea that the Soviet Union would be a uh, part of a bipolar world environment where, um, where it was uh, right up with the United States uh, was something in the past. But uh, Putin has the same vision for a revived Russia. Um, and so uh, in many ways, um, Putin in some ways has gotten his wish. You know, The Europeans are unified in a way that they haven't been since the Cold War. Uh, the US is more focused on Eastern Europe than it has been uh, since the start of the Iraq War 15, 20 years ago. Um, and so the uh, dynamics here I think are pretty pretty powerful um, and it creates an environment that Putin may be getting what he wants in terms of this implacable hostility of the West and sort of rebuilding that Cold War dynamic but in, obviously in other ways he's not getting what he wants. I mean the idea that there was going to be such a powerful response to uh, Russian aggression. Uh, even um, Swiss bankers are uh, on the side of the West and turning against Russia. So it's created, I think, a really very dangerous financial crisis for the Russian domestic economy. The Russian economy that when we're talking here on Tuesday afternoon, uh, the Russians refu refuse to open their uh, their currency markets and their and their stock markets uh, on Monday and then again today on Tuesday. Um, and it's an open question whether they'll be able to do it on Thursday, because when this opens, it's going to be a devastating hit um, because the world basically has done all it can to isolate Russia from the international financial system. And gotcha. So. We've heard a lot in the news about different sanctions, and actually, before I get to that, from Putin's standpoint of reuniting the Soviet Union, is Ukraine 
the, the logical first step, or is it just because of the kind of turmoil that was there with Crimea in 2014 and that sort of thing that he, that he figure that's a good spot to start or were there other reasons that he, that that's where he's chosen to kind of kick things off? Well, of course he can't fully rebuild the Soviet Union. Sure. Um, the, uh, many other countries have gone their own way, uh, but the Ukraine is a special case for Russians. I mean, these are, um, when you think about Belarus and Ukraine and Russia, these are countries that came up together. Um, they're um, dominant by Slavic um, Orthodox religions. And so there are certain cultural affinities. And of course, during the time of the czars, uh, Russia had control over um, the territory, most of the territory that is now uh, Ukraine. Um, it's also uh, geopolitically a really important uh, reality. When you think about any kind of military engagement involving Russia and Europe, um, Ukraine is the main way through um, east and west. Um, when Napoleon went to, uh, to Moscow, he went through uh, Ukraine. When the Nazis went to Moscow, they went through Ukraine. And then when the Russians fought back, they fought back going through what is now Ukraine. It's um, an area that creates a lot of uh, military movement back and forth, particularly um, um, as you're thinking about uh, Russia feeling worried about the international environment, um, that Ukraine is one of the places where they might want to see a significant um, distance between Ukraine and, and the rest of Europe. Um, this is also, of course, an issue for domestic politics in Russia, right? I mean, if Ukraine can build a viable, healthy, democratic society, um, well, maybe that could happen in Russia, too. And, you know, it's not useful for Putin's brand of autocracy, where anybody who disagrees with him is at risk of being poisoned or jailed or killed, uh, to have a system uh, that is built in Ukraine that would be a model for what the Russians could do themselves. And so uh, it's, I think it's important for uh, for Putin as he sees the world uh, to make these kinds of uh, choices. Now, obviously, uh, the Ukrainians had other ideas. I mean, despite being immensely outgunned um, and the resources that um, you have with respect to the Russian government versus the Ukrainian government, um, the resistance has been much more than Putin expected, and it's created significant problems in terms of a uh, military engagement that I think Putin expected would have cap decapitated the, the leadership in Kiev by now. That makes sense. I want to ask one more question about kind of the, the lead up to this, and then we can get into how things are currently and then maybe potential future things. But one of the things that I found interesting was when those eastern regions, uh, Donetsk and I forgot what the other one was called, they had kind of declared their own independence for lack of a better description uh, back in, I think, 2015, was it? Why, why did he not to kind of swoop in then to to maybe pick those up it seemed like it would have been a good opportunity right um so um well there is a part of ukraine that that the uh the putin government did sweep in the, the crimea right. um and and so that area which is part of internationally recognized borders of ukraine that was annexed by russia uh it in uh, in 2014 and then the uh, areas that you're talking about donetsk luhansk this is on the russia ukrainian border but the ukrainian side of the line these are areas that have more ethnic russians than other parts of ukraine their russian speaking is a bit more uh 
common uh, rather than Ukrainian speaking, which is the norm in most of the rest of the country. And so you had an environment where uh, Putin was making the case that there were ethnic Russians that were at risk of being uh, undermined or stepped on by uh, Ukrainians who speak Ukrainian, who view the world as Ukrainians, not as a sort of a, uh, you know, Russian province. Um, as some Russians might look at uh, Ukraine. And so those kinds of things were part of the process. But even now, um, the Russian government only controls parts of these provinces. And so the autonomy that they declared um, and the autonomy that is uh, that exists at the moment uh, is not something that is going to um, is going to be resolved with existing borders. You see, you have um, you have a, a Russian idea that uh, that they want to contain get the rest of of these uh, these regions and and create these uh, independent republics this is exactly the play by the way that putin used in georgia back in 2008 mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. uh, there were some areas close to the russian georgia border where that putin once again tried to figure out ways to uh, create areas that were under Russian control directly or indirectly. Uh, in practice, it's direct Russian control, but they like to pretend that it's not. Uh, but this creates an environment, and this is why Putin uh, does it this way, in which neither of these countries can join NATO. Um, if um, you think about an area that is part of your country that is occupied by Russia, um, you don't have territorial integrity, which is one of the preconditions for being into uh, into NATO, that you have control over your national, your entire national state. And so by piecing, taking these pieces of Ukraine or Georgia and putting them under Russia control, effectively Putin can block these countries going into NATO. As you recall, uh, this was the main argument that Putin was using against Ukraine in recent weeks, saying that, um, that the risk of NATO joining um, with Ukraine was unacceptable. Does that hold any water or what did he kind of plan on, seems to you like he planned on doing it anyways, or, or was this sort of, what, what are your thoughts on that without, I, I know it's a little bit of speculation, but. Well, certainly, um, the situation three weeks ago was already sufficient to keep Ukraine out of NATO in the short term, um, as long as the region of the Crimea and the Donbass and uh, Luhansk were under Russian control effectively, not under Ukrainian government control. Um, there wasn't going to be uh, an admission of Ukraine to, to NATO because it would immediately trigger um, if Ukraine were part of NATO and Ukraine had been attacked, then you know the uh, nations of the of the NATO are are pledged to, to defend each other in, in these cases. And so, basically, if if the if NATO said that Ukraine was in NATO now, um, you basically be talking about a war with uh, with Europe and America against the Russians. And you know yeah. nobody wants to to go down that road. Uh, people are very sympathetic. And, uh, and they're per certainly willing to provide the U.S. government and other governments provide arms and other material for the, uh, for the Ukrainian defense. But the idea of a direct uh, scenario where uh, Americans are pointing guns at Russians is a really, really dangerous scenario, one to be avoided at all costs. Yeah, absolutely. So it also, it seems like since 2014, their kind of territory would have been compromised. So it wouldn't have mattered at that point then anyways. Is that... That's right. And that's why and that's why it's, it's it's so important to recognize what Putin is doing now is very much something that he chose to do. He all the status quo 
with the occupations of the previous uh, engagement back in 2014 were sufficient to keep both Georgia and Ukraine out of NATO. So, so if that was all he cared about, mission is already accomplished. You know, this is something very different. Now he's basically deciding that he wants to get rid of the Ukrainian government. He wants to install presumably a puppet regime or take more control of the country than he does now. Um, and so um, we're not sure exactly what the end game is because Putin, of course, isn't one to tell the truth, and he certainly isn't one to to be uh, to be uh, telegraphing his intentions ahead of time. Remember, for weeks and weeks and weeks, the Russians said there wasn't going to be a war, and and here we are. So, uh, so given those things, you know, one can only speculate so much about what Putin wants. But uh, but certainly, what we see so far is that his vision. Uh, is far more than just keeping Ukraine out of NATO. He already had that base covered three, four weeks ago. He had it covered in 2014. Gotcha. That's not something that I've seen reported widely, to to be honest. But now that they've done this, we hear a lot about sanctions that they're uh, imposing. We, NATO, et cetera, has been imposing against against the Russians. What do those sorts of things entail? Because I think we hear, we in the general public hear the word sanctions and we kind of just don't really know what it means as a, as a public. So what kind of, for this specific instance, what, what has been entailed and imposed on the Russians? Yeah. Well, think of this as kind of a punishment, you know, that, you know, it's, it's not an invasion, it's not a counterattack, but it's an economic punishment and the, the, the impacts can be pretty substantial. Um, if you had a bank account in rubles, you know, and it falls by 30%, you know, a thousand dollars becomes, you know, $700 overnight, that's going to really hurt. And, you know, a lot of people don't have that much money. Um, and if you try to convert your rubles to dollars or to euros or to yen, the, the markets, international currency markets are all closed to you. Um, the, the, where this is really going to hit, of course, is the ability of the Russian government to pay its debts. The um, If you want to uh, pay your troops in the field, you know, it'd be nice if you were paying them with a currency that was worth something. If you wanted to um, to get something by way of replenishment of, 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 of food or other materials, anything that you want in the international uh, marketplace, you're, you're not going to be able to pay for it. So who's going to give it to you? You know, now maybe there's some kind of deal that can be reached with the Russians and the Chinese. The Chinese want to keep Russia, the Chinese want to keep Russia strong enough so that it can help China counter the United States. So there is some interest uh, in Russia doing okay. Uh, but at the same time, China doesn't want to be put in that same penalty box that the Russians are in right now. And that's going to be something that, that they're sort of having to work through because um, China has significant trade with Ukraine, significant independent economic activity with the West. And China is not interested in, in compromising those sorts of things to help Russia get out of a jam. So my guess is that, that that Russia more or less is on its own, you know, except for countries that are really not much of a position to help. I mean, you know, the Belarus cannot really do much to help the Russians. Um, the, you know, the, and that's the closest ally they have right now. Um, you know, and then the occasional Marxist government uh, in um, in Southeast Asia or South America or someplace, you know, where is that going to get you? You know, you don't have any uh, any real assistance in the international market. Uh, it's also going to really hurt the oligarchs and, and it's going to hurt the military um, because of resupply issues. But also the fact is that you know these are people who've um, have who've for years planned on being able to. Uh, 
to go to London or Paris if the, the going, you know, gets good, you know, and um, they have these properties internationally, but they can't get to them with because of no fly zones. And so you've got all these dynamics of, of the oligarchs who would, you know, would, would like to have their assets remain valuable who don't want to see things decline. And so, you know, and so this is a problem. I mean, you, you know, and it, it's a problem even for the, for the, for the people at the, at the bottom of the economic heap, because, you know, you can have uh, significant increases in prices of bread. You can have uh, factories that can't open and can't pay you because they can't get products from abroad because of embargoes and because of sanctions. You've got all of these kinds of things that are gonna create a very unappealing environment uh, for Putin. Uh, Will, I'm not saying that all this leads to, you know, a 1917 scenario. One can't really predict those things, um, but it's gonna hurt and it's gonna be a problem. And this is why I think, Putin has been ramping up the resources that he's throwing at Ukraine over the last several days because he knows that, uh, that this can't go on indefinitely, that this won't be helpful uh, to his position vis-a-vis uh, -vis the oligarchs, vis-a-vis -vis the military, vis-a-vis -vis the country's population, uh, if this ugliness uh, continues week after week, month after month. Right. That makes sense. That was the other thing that I was going to ask you. It seems to have been, at least from what I've been reading, hearing about the Russian military, it seemed like this would have or should have been over already, but they seem to be having more difficulty than I think people anticipated. Is there any, I could think of maybe the, the, the Russian military is not as prepared or equipped as everybody thought, or have the Ukrainians just been putting up really good resistance or kind of what's the situation there? Well, I think it's a little bit of all of these things. I mean, you know, ultimately, this is the lesson of any country that tries to invade another country in the modern era. You have a significant, vigorous defense uh, that will be put together. I mean, you know, if you think about the American Revolution and the Brits coming to, uh, to the North America, uh, that didn't work out so well for them, in part because it's hard to invade another place. Um, you see the same thing with respect to, uh, to the U.S. and Afghanistan or the U.S. and Vietnam or the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. I mean, you can, uh, with significant military advantages, you know, really reduce a place to rubble. That's what the Russians did in Chechnya. But the reality is that you don't win. Um, you, at most, you have a, uh, an expensive, uh, bloody, and ultimately unsuccessful occupation of the conquered territory. Um, you think about the IRA. Um, and that may be the scenario um, that, that is most instructive as we might think about what happens next in Ukraine. I mean, maybe the, maybe the, the Ukrainians will be able to continue to resist at the level that they're resisting. Uh, maybe they won't. But if, um, if, for, you know, the, if for Putin, he gets what he wants in the end and there's a, a, you know, the government in, in, in Kiev is, is tossed aside and he's able to impose a new government, how long is that government going to last? Um, and how much government uh, security will the Russians be required to place if it's a government imposed by outsiders over their own their own people? Um, you know, you have, um, you know, even when you win, you lose. It seems to me, uh, from the Russian perspective here, um, and this is one of the reasons why I consider this kind of a baffling choice by Putin. Um, the, the scenario of of Ukraine and NATO. It wasn't going to happen anyway in the short term because of the occupation of the of, of Crimea and the Donbas, um, and that you know you know division that you saw in Europe a month ago. Some of these countries are more pro-Russian than others in in the European Union. Um, now they're all on side. 
you know, uh, you know, the opinion in Finland for joining NATO, it was 19% a couple years ago, it's now over 50%. You know, this mm -hmm. is a country right up tight against Russia, that has always, always argued that the best way to deal with the Russians was not to antagonize them. You know, that that you can be in, you know, the Finnish argument was you can be independent. Or you can be a tiny Finnish speaking province in the Russian empire, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, they sort of had to tread carefully. Um, Sweden, a, another neutral country, um, you know, also tried to sort of navigate between the shoals of NATO and the like. Uh, both of these countries may very well be in NATO by the end of the year because of the, um, the actions that Russia has taken and the fears that it has generated within, um, within even independent nations, uh, separate from, uh, from NATO and the European Union um, in, uh, in Europe and Switzerland, of course, among them. Right. So what are we looking at kind of kind of going forward um, with you both US options and in Europe more more broadly? What what kind of things do you sort of foresee or are potential options for what could be happening in the next week, month? Well, I, I think, you know, I think that, you know, a lot is going to depend on uh, on the impact of these sanctions. Um, that is um, not a trivial matter. Um, there is a significant effort at resupplying the Ukrainians in defensive weapons. Um, will that be able to continue? Will the Ukrainians still be able to have materials delivered inside the country? Um, what you know, what will be the status of, of, of Kyiv and uh, going forward? I mean, there are so many uncertainties about how this process works out. Um, the, uh, I think that we recognize the limitations of prediction uh, when we recognize that just about all of the folks who really study the military, I don't study the militaries particularly, and all of them thought that, that, um, that, uh, that, that Russians would be able to conquer the capital uh, within uh, four days. And we're, all, we're already almost a week into this and, um, and Ukrainian defenses seem to be holding pretty well around the capital. And whether that will continue to be the case, who knows? Um, but, you know, I, I hesitate to say much by way of predictions because, of course, you know, the people who know a lot more about the military uh, configurations, the uh, armaments and capacities of the Russian Ukrainian military, people who know a lot more about that stuff than I do, um, didn't particularly end up with uh, a prediction that was borne out in the first week of fighting. Gotcha. Well, it's 3.30. I appreciate your time. Uh, hopefully all you guys listening uh, learned something. I, I, I sure did. Um, I think do you have you have a few books out as well? I think is that accurate? Yes. Um, uh, there's presidential communication and character um, that studies how presidents sell themselves to the country. Um, there's the global president that talks about how the U.S. and the U.S. presidents sell themselves around the world in terms of how um, they present the United States and the president in particular to global audiences. Uh, there's a there's another book that's not. Um, uh, that's not particularly relevant to this conversation today, Late Night with Trump, Political Humor in the American Presidency. I look at late night humor and how they deal with politics. Um, but, uh, in, uh, you know, but basically, um, you know, this is, um, you know, the, 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 you know the, uh, a really, really important moment uh, in, uh, in global history. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and so it's, uh, it's horrific what's happening. Um, you look at the pictures and you, and you feel just horrible about the suffering that people are, are, are going through. And it's, it's doubly, doubly a tragedy when you think about how this was the choice of one person to cause all this mayhem um, yeah. for uh, an outcome that, uh, 
that won't even end up being all that successful for him. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed we don't end up, end up in World War III. I think that would be horrific for everyone involved. Um, if you guys are interested in his books, I'll put the links to those down in the description below. Uh, and with that, I appreciate your time. I hope you have a, a good rest of your day. Bye, everybody. <laughs>